smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast you're watching on the record and on the show today we have one of the sharpest critics of the central government the finance minister of tamil nadu p tyagarajan often referred to as ptr dr rajan's dmk government is marking its first year of their anniversary and it comes at a time when they are fighting with the center over fuel prices and the power crisis to add to that there's also the persisting problem of the opposition do they pose a challenge at all to the bharatiya janata party nationally with its majority in both houses what should be the opposition strategy to talk about it all we have dr rajan joining us and i also have my colleague hd's uh, political economy editor roshan kishore who will be joining me in asking the questions thanks so much sir for taking out the time thanks for having me So I want to start out by talking about this whole uh, fuel price uh, crisis and increasing prices. Now they say that the states should reduce their taxes VAT. You say that um it should go back to how it was before 2014. Uh, so where does the solution lie sir for common people? Yeah, I think you know the union government in its current form are masters of kind of obfuscation and uh, kind of dissembling uh, right it's crazy logic you have a union government you have a state government under the constitution the union government does what it's supposed to do the state government does what it's supposed to do the union government raised taxes on petrol by three times and on diesel by about 10 times between 2014 and 2022 did they call the states and consult did they ask for synchronization i mean they think they are authorized to do what they are elected to do they did that we did in in my case i'm not even defending my own actions i'm defending my predecessor government's actions it was the admk government that was in power since 2014 till 2021 and in the course of those years they raised it uh, maybe by 20 or 30 or 50% So now all of a sudden for the union government to turn around and tell the states you cut the taxes is immoral is illogical and unconstitutional i don't understand where they got the right to dictate to others what they should do you did whatever you wanted to do now you tell others no no i say you should do this they only got elected to run the federal union government right they didn't get elected to run tamil nadu government right who are they to tell tamil nadu what to do that's a profound question i have So one of the things that they always suggest or other people watching suggest is is it a good idea for uh fuel prices to be brought under the whole GST regime because that would just then mean a uniform thing for everyone Look there's two parts to that question there's a structural part and there's a execution part The structural part is very clear If you remove all variables of taxation away from the states and put them into the so-called GST bucket where are states to determine their revenue policy right they want it like uh, effectively turn states into municipalities this i must confess that whatever i say here today every single word every single syllable i say here today in defense of states rights is going to be a more soft position than the honorable prime minister's position when he was the honorable chief minister of gujarat 
right? He may be the kind of person who changes his values because he changes his seat. But we have the record of what he said when he was the Chief Minister of Gujarat. So there's a profound question which is, if all direct taxation is with the union and only indirect taxation was with the states, and now you've taken away the bulk of indirect taxation away, indirect taxation away from the states, claiming for homogenization. That means it is the only large country in the world where the states are almost bereft of any measures for revenue management. I'm not talking about expense management, I'm talking about revenue management. On the expense management side also, they're curtailing the state's powers, that's a different problem. But on the revenue side, why should the states not have the independence which was envisioned in the constitution to tax people for their philosophy, their political approach? It's very clear. If you look back the last eight years, this union government is a pro-rich, anti-poor government. It's very clear in the numbers. Direct taxation revenues as a total of government revenues have fallen by 7-8%. Direct taxation is progressive because you can raise the slab, you know who you're taking it from. Indirect taxation is regressive. You don't know who you're taking it from, you don't know who's buying how much petrol, at least the bulk of indirect taxation is regressive. So they have clearly shown their philosophy of administration by increasing the burden on the poor and the middle class and reducing it on the rich and the corporates. We don't want to do that. We want to be a progressive government and we want to tax more on those who can afford to pay and less on those who cannot afford to pay, who should not have the burden. But the tools are not in our hand. So 100% of the direct taxation and the bulk of indirect taxation is now in the union's hands. Now they'll come up with this kind of, you know, uh, again, obfuscation of some kind of trickery saying, oh, but GST is actually federal. How is the GST council structure set up? If all but 10 or 11 states agree, they still can't get the council to vote that way because so far in the history of the GST council, the union government has never allowed it to come to a vote. So effectively, it's a strong arm tactic, though they say consensus, consensus, consensus. The design of the GST council decision-making mechanism is such that the union government can stop anything they want and the union government plus 10 or 11 states can get anything they want passed. And who are these 10 or 11 states? These 10 or 11 states are the Northeast, the little states, whose 70 to 90% of their budget comes from union grants. Do you think they're ever going to go against union government? I'm not talking about politics. I'm only talking about money now. Of yeah. course, all the Northeast states and the little states have all gone towards the union's political alignment because that's where the money comes from, right? So my point is, it is not in the concept of democracy that was envisioned by our founding fathers and the constitution writers, that this kind of deprivation of states' rights should happen. If you take all the taxation power and all the decisions and then you do it in a regressive way, then why are we going to agree to that? Now let's come to the specific issue. We are perfectly happy to put petrol diesel into GST if, if all cesses are removed. Right now, the union government takes, you know, 20 odd rupees a liter assess and one rupee or less on excise. Now they say, oh, let's put it into GST. They lose one rupee. We lose 100% of our taxation. How is this fair? I mean, this, this is just masters of fakery and like, you know, like, uh, what do you say? Shallow logic, which, which they can do sloganeering. And they hope most people are too stupid to understand the difference between reality and slogan. Right. That's how I can explain it. Russian? 
Sir, in hindsight, uh, do you think GST has been a bad idea for fiscal federalism? Uh, now the end of the compensation period is coming up. I mean, would you as the finance minister of Tamil Nadu, other states, would you be pushing for an extension of that period? Sir, GST is profoundly bad. Not in concept, not in uh, the notion of having a standardized tax is less than perfectly clear and ideal that it would be good, but it is debatable. Where we have failed, miserably failed, is in the design of GST and in the implementation even more so. Because it was rushed to market as a political gimmick and as a usual kind of, you know, let's keep everybody. See, when there is failure all around, this union government's economic statistics for the last eight years reek of failure. They don't just smell of it. They reek of failure in per capita, you know, incomes, in job losses, in slowing GDP growth. They reek of failure. So what is the strategy? Is this kind of demagogic rabble-rousing strategy of keep everybody unsettled and keep on trying to throw something new into the mix so that they don't talk about the numbers. So you have this strategy where you introduced it overnight for the sake of drama. It was not properly designed. How many hundreds of changes have come about? Now I'm saying there are huge problems in the execution. I have brought this up multiple times in the GST Council, starting with my first term as a member, first media as a member, where I've listed out. I said, you know, nobody works on this full-time. We all have day jobs. We're supposed to come and work on this in our part-time. Issues get delayed. The GST, GOM on gaming, casinos and horse racing was constituted in last May or June with the original mandate of coming up with a report in six months. That GOM became defunct effectively in two or three months when the Gujarat minister who was the convener of the council lost his role in the cabinet reshuffle. Till December, nobody bothered to reconstitute the council I mean, the GOM, and nobody bothered to reappoint a new convener. After I brought it up in the emergency meeting on uh, December 31st, in February, they appointed a new convener and reconstituted the council. That council met for the first time at the end of April, and now they want to rush a report to the entire committee in less than two weeks. So I'm saying, you did nothing, zero, nada. Not one meeting of the council happened for eight months, of the GOM happened for eight months. At the end of eight months, now you want to rush a report in two weeks, right? Let's go with the committee on rate rationalization, constituted in September of last year, was supposed to come back in two months. How many months has crossed in September of last year? Seven or eight months. As best I know, only one meeting has happened. I'm not sure that many others have happened. I'm not a member, but there has been no uh, report submitted. What about the standing committee on reforms constituted in September or October? We had one meeting by phone call. We all said, this is not right. This is such a profound issue. Let us all meet in person. Multiple people asked for it. Uh, Manoj uh, uh, Sisodia, um, uh, Chautala, you know, honorable ministers from all these states, including myself. We said, let's meet in person. Let's meet where the data systems and the analysts are. Let's ask the right data. Let's find out where we go. No. Second meeting, again, offline. Third meeting, not yet scheduled, right? Like the whole council has met online, but the GOM meets offline. Why? Because they basically want to use bureaucrats to do whatever it is that they want without getting any intelligent question asked. And then submit. So the system is doomed to failure if it goes like this. It's not, it's not politics. It's a guy who's an operations research analyst, former consultant, former like, you know, large organization managing director telling you 
that this is a system that is doomed to failure because it has zero execution capability. It pretends to go through the motions and it doesn't have the capacity to get that done right. So, what do you think is the solution, sir? I mean, you're saying it's basically a political problem, the way in it is, it's being run, right? No, no, I'm saying it is an administrative problem. I'm saying there's no, it's not a political problem, sir. It's an administrative problem. But at, at the behest of the executive, right? Yeah, I mean, at the behest of the executive because they want to pretend that the system is still functioning properly. That's all. The only political component to it is this uh, image management component. The rest of it is pure administrative shortcomings in design and execution. That's all it is. The political component only comes when you try to put lipstick on the pig. You say, oh no, it looks everything is fine. Right. That's all. I just ask one more question, sir, then Sunetra Vedic. There is a lot of talk generally politically of building a federal front to oppose the BJP. Uh, we do not see a similar push, sir. I'm not saying that efforts are not being made, like you said. But there's very little talk of building a front of, say, non-BJP state governments to actually champion issues of fiscal federalism. This is one area where India had a very rich legacy in the past. Sir, I'll say three things. One, it's above my pay grade to worry about the national election and national politics and all that. I'm a second-time MLA, first-time minister. Uh, the second, uh, I have very high confidence that of the variables within our power today, of course, the union government tries to dilute them every second of every hour of every day. But still, at the pace that they execute, uh, by the grace of God, they are not one hundredth as competent at administration and execution as they are in politics. So they cannot strip us of all our powers. So as far as my eye can see for the next four years of our term, I have headroom of things we can improve in the government, uh, in the Tamil Nadu system, in our administration, in our finances, in our model, and in our uh, kind of interaction with the world and investment attraction. So I think there are a lot of variables in our control that will improve our lives. And I'm kind of focused on that. I'll go a slightly different way. I'll say to the extent that I never expected my leader, the Chief Minister of Tamil Nadu, to have this kind of national attention in this little time. You know, it was not his stated intent that he wanted to be a national player. He is the first time Chief Minister of Tamil Nadu. He inherited a broken kind of system, deeply in debt, with huge revenue deficits, 60,000 crores the previous year. And with the administration, in my opinion, decayed through a lack of political leadership for the last five years. I don't think anybody would argue with that. So he did what was his job. I did what was my job. Forget him. I'm surprised at how much of a national kind of image I have. I mean, the fact that the two of you feel like it's worth talking to me itself tells you something because we are not aiming to be the national dialogue. We are not aiming to shape the national dialogue. We are doing our jobs. We are doing our jobs with probably two things profoundly different from the union government in my kind of thinking of this. One, compassion. We are looking to be compassionate, to be progressive, to protect the bottom, to keep harmony, to avoid bigotry and othering and hatred. And of course, that Chief Minister does most of that. And two, competence. The only two things I can say that we are fundamentally different. We have our values and they are profoundly compassionate and kind of social justice oriented. And we seem to be good at doing our jobs relatively. This has elevated 
me, let alone my chief minister, to a status that neither of us asked for, expected, and really get that much, you know, kind of uh, benefit from. We are doing our jobs. But it tells you what the state of the country is. Right? That's that's the only thing I would leave you with. So that actually brings me, cues me up to what I was going to ask you. Because I was reading your, uh, you know, comments recently. And you talk about... Uh, that how Tamil Nadu hasn't been impacted. I know the chief minister wrote was part of the opposition letter, which they wrote to the prime minister about the communal violence that we've witnessed lately. But you said something interesting. You said that Tamil Nadu stays buffered by this because of the fact that in Tamil Nadu, you have democratized religion. Uh, I wanted you to explain to all of us outside what exactly you meant by that. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one, uh, I'll give you the theory and I'll give you the ultimate case study of it, right? Which would you like first, the theory first or the case study? Whatever you want, sir. I, why don't we start with the case study? The case study is the Sabri Malay Temple, which is not even in Tamil Nadu. It's because of the way the Kerala Tamil Nadu division happened. It's just across the border in Kerala. The Sabri Malay Temple was a small hill temple, which hardly attracted maybe three or 5,000 people a year prior to 1950-51. There was an incident, which is, you know, a high sensitive incident, so I don't want to go into it. But the consequence of that incident is that the temple was burned to the ground, the idol was uh, damaged, and uh, it was basically, uh, uh, you know, in need of rebuilding from the ground up. There's a lot of story why, but I won't get into that. But the net result of the need for refurbishment was that the, the people in charge of the temple came and met my grandfather in Madurai. My grandfather was then the former chief minister of the S12 Madras presidency. He had done a lot of work for temples. Our ancestral lands are in the Kambam Valley close to where the temple is. We had some historic connectivity with those families, the Pandalan family and so forth. So they asked my grandfather to uh, donate a new idol for the temple. My grandfather and his friends had uh, two or three identical idols made in uh, Swami Malay in Kumbakonam. And my grandfather personally took it around the state of Tamil Nadu, I think some other places, maybe Sri Lanka and all that. He took it around to popularize the, or to create a following, right? Now, no less than the Honorable Union Finance Minister told me some of the anecdotes related to that. When I was in Delhi recently, she reminded me or she told me, I didn't know of it, that when my grandfather brought the idol to Madurai Temple, you know, there's, there's a way of consecrating a man-made uh, um, idol into a, a deified one that you can put in a temple, right? The guy, what, so part of that ceremony, he was taking it around, he brought it to the Madurai Meenakshaman Temple, which we have a long history with, my ancestors built part of it. And in that temple, the kind of more uh, traditional people said that the idol should not be allowed in the temple because the L.I. Sami, it's, a, it's outside the border uh, idol, uh, God, and should not be involved into the temple. And it went so far as some people stopped praying at the temple, saying that the temple had been defiled because this God had been brought into the temple for the ceremony. I didn't know that. Honorable Union Finansmith told me also. But after that, everything got sorted and all that. But anyway, the net result is that like before 1951-52, this basically did not exist. Today, less than 70 years later, or around 70 years later, the single biggest following where crores and crores of people go, many of them multiple times a year, in any temple south of Tirupati is Sabri Malay. 
So in a culture and a land where you have temples that are hundreds and thousand plus years, you know, some thousand five hundred years old, brilliant architecture, you know, gorgeous scale, massive, you know, exemplary of the style. How is it that the most frequented temple is one that where one you know human being carried it around and put it there, and now it has got crows of people going? So it tells you that the norms of a society, the mores of a society, are as much about community building and as much about creating that camaraderie, that that uh, that kind of engagement, as it is about anything else. This is the case study. Now I tell you the theory. The theory is starting in the 1920s after multiple attempts, including many generations of my family. My grand uncle, great grand uncle, was one of the founders of the Justice Party. you know uh, crusaded for the the nationalization of the kings and and uh, you know uh, empires old temples it was passed once the governor refused to sign it under dayaki 1921 it was passed a second time it went into law the hindu religious endowments uh, board was created and step by step by step once the state got control all governments including rajaji the swatantra the congress governments all governments continuously democratized the saivite practices and the temple practices in tamil nadu in what way when my grandfather was hr minister first of all the government taking it over means that everybody has to be treated equal there's no insider outside it's well preserved the government takes responsibility there is no kind of cabal there's no cartel second even my grandfather was minister he said any caste can be a trustee you don't have to be only a brahmin or an upper caste step by step it got changed when my grand uncle bakthachalam was minister he said the archanais can be said in tamil right when talangar talangar kalangar became chief minister he said one of the trustees must be an adidravidar and one of the trustees must be a woman then we came step by step now we say priests can be any caste and you can have women odwars and so forth and this chief minister has done that so who did the dalit temple entry act it was rajaji rajaji of the congress and the swatantra party when they came to power after the justice party's reign was over rather than reverse the nationalization of temples they went the other way and said we legalize and formalize that dalits can go all the way into the inner sanctum into the sanctum sanctorum so we have step by step and step and step democratic what is the result of that if i walk out now and go down the street in the next 10 streets i'll find 50 temples in every corner at every t junction you know there's all these beliefs everybody in people's houses i have temples in my house right everybody is free to build temples to follow in their own way to have their own community their own uh, you know priests their own rituals some 30000 temples that used to be belonging to the kings and had cultural value are nationalized by the government and run under the hrnc now you ask me is the hrnc an exemplary department absolutely not it is as rotten or more rotten than any other department it needs correcting completely agree but that is true of all departments right that's true of medicine that's true of education that's true of uh, health that's true. so if we nationalize because you have a corrupt or an inefficient administration then we shouldn't run government at all that's not that's just not for tamil nadu i'm saying in any in any state anywhere in the country that can't be the basis of privatization so my point is we democratized it in terms of access in terms of, why is it so important that the archana should be said in tamil that means we can understand what the priest is communicating to god on our behalf you see it's so important so you know we have all these uh, step by step by step expanding the tent and making the practice inclusive and not discriminatory so it's very hard to do othering here is my view
So, so in that context, I want you to explain to me how is that different from what we saw with the entire movement about the Ayodhya temple recently? I, I mean, you know, how do you see that? How would you contrast that? And, and you know, the kind of uh, communal history and, you know, the polls that happened. Um, how would you... Well, you know, the less I say about the, the temple, the better, because it reflects, in my opinion, not well on us as a country, on the judicial system, on the kind of irrationality and successive orders, in the amount of scams that have been run in terms of raising funds. Uh, let me put it another way. That is not what in, I am a practicing Hindu or Saivite to my understanding of the religion. Uh, what happened there in my mind is not, uh, is not the highest example of what should have happened in our, uh, in our way of life. I mean, I have an unrelated question, but, but basically, sir, recently, you know, petrol taxes have been one issue which has been debated upon. But uh, there's been a lot of discussion off late about the quote-unquote freebie culture also. Political parties promising a whole lot of sops to voters you know, so that they win elections. Now, Tamil Nadu is a state which you know, has had this political culture for a very long time. And there have been critiques of it. And there are, we are now also seeing research which says that the, the Dravidian model has actually helped you know, a lot of human development, etc. But Tamil Nadu also, like you said, has a real debt sustainability problem. It has got a fiscal problem. What is your take on this debate? Look, I think there are three different questions there. I think the term freebies is kind of, again, a lazy terminology, right? Everybody gives something for free. Yes. Right? I mean, uh, the question is uh, in what context and how much related to elections and so forth. So from that perspective, I would say I've, I've had this discussion many times before, so I don't want to bore you or bore myself. But uh, there are many types of so-called free of cost services, right? There are some that are essential, free food to children, free laptops to college goers, free I mean, these are meaning government school students. We're not giving to all students, we're only giving to government school uh, poor, uh, relatively poor, economically backward. Free cycles for girls to go and attend high school. These kinds of things, they are revenue expenses in the accounting treatment of the state. But they're really, in my opinion, capital investments. If you bought it for your house, you'd account the laptop as a capital investment, right? Or, you know, putting food into kids and making their nourishment go up, uh, nutrition go up, is a capital investment in human resources, right? So there are, there are good freebies, uh, what are called otherwise called freebies. There are good investments. There are some that I have justified uh, as kind of insurance type, right? Health insurance, uh, money for weddings and, and thalis, which is a way of trying to reduce the risk of debt. There is, um, uh, what can I say, uh, you know, other kinds of subsidies and so forth uh, in that space. And then there are uh, what I would consider you know, illogical or irrational freebies, like um, two-wheelers, 25,000 rupees subsidy to buy two-wheelers and so forth for one lakh people a year when you have a population of uh, seven and a half to eight crore. Uh, you know, it's, it's bad in everywhere. So, you know, it's, it's a too broad a term. Now I'll go to two separate levels. Do we have unsustainable debt? Well, really not that bad. It, it was a really... What was bad was that it went from 17% of GSDP to 27% of GSDP in 10 years or so. And that was bad. What was bad, more worse than that, was that it made the interest burden uh, go from 11% of revenue to 21% of revenue. Therefore, it, it, it put us into a kind of unsustainable short-term and longer-term problem. 
We have already started to correct that this year. If you see the medium-term fiscal plan we put out as part of the FRA, the R states equivalent of the FRBM, we put that out as part of the budget. And I've been conservative. In, in, I'm saying that in two years, we'll come down to almost zero revenue deficit and under 3% fiscal deficit. That's what the FRA Act requires. In fact, I'm fairly confident that barring some you know, extraneous events of great shock, we'll beat that just like we beat this year's estimates and we'll beat every year's estimate because we're conservative in estimating and we're very good at executing and we get better all the time. Second year, third year, we learn our job. So um, it's not unsustainable. It was the decay in such a rapid time from being an exemplary state to being a basket case state was what really bothered us. But, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate that when I came and saw the inside workings of the government, I realized how things had rotted. And with the full support of my chief minister and his blessings, uh, we are on track to bring it back. So what, what the seven years of decay, I'm saying I'll correct it in three years. By the time we present the 24-25 budget, we'll be back where we need to be. And after that, it's sustainable. It will still not be down to 17% and 11%, but it will be both going downwards. And maybe another two, three years from that, we'll be back there where we need to be. The third component is, is there a correlation between the freebies or these kind of handouts and the unsustainability at the short term or the depth of decay in the, in the short term? The answer is that's not clear. In fact, their spending was much less also because you see what these guys did. The biggest problem was a loss of revenue because there was so much corruption on the way in, in commercial taxes, in mining, in, uh, in almost every department, in alcohol, in Tasmac, in everything that the revenues dropped from 10%, 9.5%, of GSTP, states own, independent of the union's grant uh, or, or share of taxes come back. It dropped from 95 10% to 7% before the pandemic and 6, you know, 5.86% during the pandemic. That was the problem. So they compensated for that partly by extra borrowing, partly by cutting back the spending. So in fact, they were not able to do profligate spending because they didn't have enough money. Because they did a bit of it here and there around the elections and stuff. But if you look at the overall spending of the government, it came down dramatically as a percentage of GSDP because they couldn't fill the whole loss of revenue by borrowing. They couldn't borrow additional 3% of GSDP. What used to be a revenue neutral state, if you suddenly go down to a revenue drop of 3%, you can only increase your revenue deficit by 1.5-2% of GSDP and that means you kill investment, that means you kill future growth. All those are longer term consequences. In the shorter term, that means you're still spending one or one and a half percent less of GSDP compared to a good government in revenue expenses. So, in fact, there's not a clear correlation that the freebies led to the problem. There were some other really mismanaged and badly run things that led to the problem. So I have a related question. Are you surprised or do you think then because DMK has practice and we talked about welfare politics, are you surprised and do you think it's smart politics what the BJP is doing now in you know, the success of their in the recent state elections was attributed to having this whole beneficiaries to all the welfare politics that they did, along with the Hindu vote, targeting the Hindu vote. So do you think that they are now able to practice, which is something that DMK and others have done for a long time? Yeah, it's hard for me to say, you know. Uh, I must confess that for somebody like me, relatively, you know, technical and scientific in my approach, relatively data-driven, relatively, uh, you know, deep an analyst by nature, it's hard for me to see how governments, how BJP governments keep getting re-elected, both at the union in 19 and in other parts, 
in the Hindi belt. And uh, some part of me wonders whether it is the lack of education, the lack of kind of opportunity and therefore the lack of hope. And in fact, uh, I won't name the person, but a very senior person in Delhi that I had a chance to meet uh, effectively told me the same thing that I had been thinking. I said, is it that the differences in the southern states and in the coastal states, we are still talking about hope, about the, the pie growing and trying to promise people different portions of the pie. Whereas in the hinterland, it's everybody's taken for granted the pie is not going to grow. At best, you're going to get greater devolution from the rich states. So really, it's about a fight of, it's a zero-sum game, fighting for who gets what share of the pie, and therefore, uh, othering and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, rabble-rousing and, and, you know, jingoism plays a big role. It, you know, that, that's one theory. The other theory, of course, which, you know, uh, worries me a bit is that I don't know. I'm so far away, right? I only know my politics. It's entirely possible that when I look at it from outside, we are all limited and shaped by our views, our experiences, our data. It's entirely possible that the people of those states somehow feel or have been convinced that the opposition would be even worse off. And so they're choosing between, you know, the, the, the less bad of two bad choices. I, I can't tell. I just don't have enough data and I don't have enough analysis. And so I don't know what goes into what. But let me go another way. The primary reason to do this kind of subsidy and this kind of schemes, in my opinion, ought not to be whether or not you can win the next election or two elections on it. The primary reason to do it should be that if you are, a, you know, Dravidian for us, and it could be equal to anybody, but let's say, instead of Dravidian, I'd say inclusive growth, compassionate government, then your job is to protect the bottom of the pyramid, right? And let me put it another way. What is the job of a government from an economic perspective? It's not that complicated. Only three or four real major functions. One, to raise revenues justly, fairly, more from those who can pay, less from those who cannot, and use it to provide a good quality of life, high quality public goods and services to everybody. In effect, you're neutralizing or kind of elevating the average lifestyle of society at the expense of the rich relative to the poor. Number two, to provide a safety net for those who need it, and that will not be permanently anybody. In a good society, there should be social mobility, and from some time, time to time, everybody may need unemployment insurance or health treatment or whatever. So you provide a safety net for those who need it and show you're a caring and compassionate society. Number three, you create an environment for growth. You create a good law and order situation, good infrastructure investment, good kind of uh, labor force so that you create the environment for investment and capital to come and create opportunities and go forward, right? Broadly, those are the kind of three things. And then, of course, the philosophy of kind of, you know, uh, what is the right role for the private sector? What's the right role for the public sector? What's the right role for the cooperation movement or joint ventures? And this kind of, this is broadly the, the role of the government. In the course of that, if you are required to provide something, what you may call freebie, what, what I may call equalizing payments or social mobility investment or human factor development investment, then it's okay because you're doing it as part of some philosophy. You're not just doing it because this election or next election. I'm not saying all parties are great. I'm not saying any party is 100% pure. I'm not saying all manifestos are pure. Of course, some of this happens everywhere. 
but i think the core values are the most important thing you do things based on your core values i'll give you one example of the case study my leader has announced uh, in in his 10 year plan he first announced to chief that we would like to provide every uh, uh, woman who runs a house a thousand rupees a month right now you can look at it in multiple ways you look at it as every ration card and there's 2 crore something ration cards then you say 2 crore something ration cards times 12000 rupees a year is 24000 25000 crores that's a big bill that might be you know higher than all but two or three departments worth of spending in the in the tamil nadu government but then you look at it the other way and say really is the intent to provide 1000 rupees to every single person because tamil nadu is i think in my understanding the only state that has a universal pds whoever asks for one gets a card they don't have to come and buy anything they're like seven or eight grades of cards some people almost get no benefit but the number of cards roughly matches the number of families then you say should you really give number all the families 1000 rupees well here are the macro statistics the per capita income of tamil nadu is over 3 lakh rupees right and whatever we do like survey statistics we found 75% of people own their own houses 90% of households have phones uh, 60% plus own two wheelers there are 2.6 crore registered two wheelers in tamil nadu only 2.1 something crore cards ration cards more than 50% of households have refrigerators are these the people who really need 1000 rupees a month so my my personal view on this would be that we should have some measure of trying to find out who will really benefit whose life improves how do we get social justice uh, uplift which we say is our core value by doing these kinds of payments and do those payments as opposed to universal payments certainly my family or my relatives don't need the money right we are not of the of the need of uh, government support so dr thakrajan of course the bjp also says that they provided not for winning elections but only because they were looking at the kind of hardship people were going through during the pandemic and of course post facto we experts and election watchers uh, people like us are saying that obviously people benefited from of being beneficiaries of those schemes and so they voted for the government can i just interrupt sorry i didn't mean to do that yes. then look at people what they do after the government compared to what they do before after the uh, elections compared to what they do before the election that would be my point right we won the elections then we came and said to stimulate demand and for, fulfill my electors uh, my chief minister's pledge we spent almost 20000 crores in additional spending compared to the budget that was laid by my predecessor who put in an interim budget in february after spending 20000 crores more than he would have ever dreamt of spending for these reasons i still brought the numbers in better than he had envisioned them when he did not know there would be a second wave or a third wave or a, or a rainfall worse than 2015 that's what administrative competence is right so i agree any anything can be twisted anyway but it's what you do when you know what they used to say right character is about what you do when no one's watching right values are about what you do when there's no election on the line when there's an election on the line of course everybody does you know what they think will be so there's another thread i want to pick up from what you said because you seem to indicate the reason why bjp appeals to many in the hindi belt is because perhaps of lower education levels but so right in your neighborhood in karnataka we see the bjp doing really no, no, well no 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 sorry madam I, i don't want you to put any words in my mouth i said i cannot understand how in the hindi belt these guys keep getting reelected right somebody who had wrought demonetization somebody who had wrought 
an ill-planned and dramatic lockdown with the consequences of that. Somebody who had brought the impact of GST implemented without proper planning and a pilot study and a you know, parallel track on MSMEs. How those people get re-elected again and again, I can't fathom. So now I'm looking for explanations and, and I'm trying to find maybe one of the explanations is that the lowest income levels and the lowest per capita education levels are highly correlated with this outcome. I don't have any proof. I don't know anything. As I said, I said also there's a second alternative that I as know. bad as the performance looks compared to me, it may be that they are the best of bad choices. I don't know. I just don't have enough data. That's all I'm saying. I'm not. So I'm not. I'm not implying that only uneducated people work and all that. Please don't. Uh, no, no, I know, I know, I know, sir. I know. I don't want to get you into trouble, and that wasn't the objective. I just wanted clarity, and and the clarity which I want is you seem to suggest perhaps that there is a there is a problem with the opposition's narrative. Uh, I mean, many people are pointing that out. So I wanted to ask you, since you, even though you say that you're, you know, you're concerned with your state and. You know, as as a political person watching, and of course, 2024 is going to be a big thing for you all. So, what do you think is lacking in the opposition strategy when taking on the BJP? I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I can only talk to my understanding. My understanding is that the notion of national politics is frayed. It was fraying already. That's why you had probably 25, 30 years of coalition governments before you saw the simple majority, which came as kind of a shock to the system in 2014. And then by 2019, I mean, I've not expressed this before, so just uh, stick with me while I think it through. Sure. In, in the extent of diversity in India is so high from state to state in education, in per capita income, in culture, in food, in everything, in language. It is very rare. It, no, no, it's, it's impossible to run a national party that is internally consistent. Think about it. The BJP is for and very comfortable with beef in Goa and in the Northeast. People can get killed on suspicion of carrying cows in uh, UP and Madhya Pradesh. How are they consistent with each other? Right? The BJP is not for imposing a kind of uh, one-size-fits-all in, uh, uh, you know, trying to Hindu the, the Northeast. But in other places, they say Hindu Rashtra. So what I'm trying to say is, it is not in the nature of humanity and certainly of a country the size of India, which I think it was the economist who once said India is a continent masquerading as a country. Right? How many countries have this scale of population with this much diversity in every dimension. So the notion that there is a standardized policy or standardized approach that fits 1.4 billion people of such great diversity inherently is a fallacy in my opinion. If you see the history of the world, as governments have evolved, as economies have developed, as people have become richer, they want greater and greater local self-governance. They want greater and greater devolution of powers to the nearest elected body that is, you know, in their reach. If you look in the UK, right, all the town planning and zoning and all is done by the local council. If you look at China, the mayor of Shanghai runs the police, the schools, the industrial permits, the pollution, everything. If you look at the US, where I lived for 20 years, 
from alcohol policy to sales tax to income tax to police to school board to everything is run by the village or the county. You are not even reached the state till now. So this is the name. You look at Switzerland. The canton decides on your application for permanent residency or citizenship because you have to fit into that community right, where you're going to live. So here you have the history of the world, devolution of power, greater and greater devolution closer to the people is how countries develop. We started in the wrong place. We started because there was no country like India in a culture that was thousands of years old, had been many little kingdoms, big kingdoms, this, you know, this invader, that invader. So we're creating the notion of a nation and therefore they needed to uh, kind of empower the union much more than the periphery. Though they said they are not, you know, superior and inferior levels of government, they are parallel levels of government, right? And what does it say? India is a union of states. That's what it says. Even though the, the bifurcation of powers is not that uh, balanced on near the rest of the world. Now you have a situation where an already bad problem, which got exacerbated by the 42nd Amendment in, uh, in, uh, during the emergency, where they moved a bunch of crucial subjects into the uh, concurrent list, is being completely, uh, what can I say, uh, made incendiary by a union government that is flouting all constitutional norms, all these things, and wants to run everything from ports to uh, dams to highways to education to, you know, literally telling you what food to eat, what language to speak, all of this stuff. This will not end well. It's doomed to fail. There's no other outcome. It is doomed to fail. The question is, how long does it continue and how much deprivation does it result in? And I think if you want to look for a classic example of unlimited power, very poor execution, leading to a conflagration, you don't have to look very far down south past Kanyakumari to see what has happened in Sri Lanka. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen here because India has still got some kind of devolution and the states are still doing something that is different from each other. And there are still states that have hope. There are still states where there's growth. There are still states where there's jobs being created. So it's not that bad. But my, my overarching concern is that more and more of this power is concentrated. The money, the power, the decision, the design is concentrated in a place where they are not capable of executing. I'm sure you've read the CAG reports on Swachh Bharat and Krish Kalyan and all Every single year, they cannot spend the money. And even if they spend the money and build the toilet, well, it's the local body that has to make the water flow to the toilet. How many toilets do you know that can operate without water? If you build a toilet and you can't supply it with water, is it worse than not having a toilet at all? In Bihar, you've read those case studies where they send the money for the, you know, for the whitewashing of the school and the school can't use it because they have a, a, a thatch, a thatch school. It's not, it's not a, a paka building to whitewash, right? So, and, and, and the ultimate bottleneck, in my opinion, the ultimate bottleneck comes down to effectively there seem to be only one or two decision makers in Delhi, right? And if there are only one or two decision makers, nature cannot tolerate that kind of vacuum. And so what happens is that the officers of the PMO start making policy to feed. Because no, no human being has the bandwidth to process infinite amounts of information. So we are now getting less and less of the advantages of a democracy where a million voices are heard. Decisions are made close to the people whose lives are affected by those decisions. And the collective wisdom results in the outcome. 
right? And you do it at the, you know, the, the, the nearest to the level people it needs to be. In, in, in the village of Amherst where I lived in, in uh, Williamsburg where I lived in the U.S. for some time, the school board had a different syllabus than the next town of Amherst. Right? Here we're saying, no, no, NEP, Delhi will tell us how the school should run. Well, in Tamil Nadu, the average education level is plus two graduate. In Bihar, it is elementary school dropout. Why should the same element, why should the same education policy equally fit both these populations? It doesn't make sense to me. So my, my concern is not about elections. Elections are elections. I mean, I don't know who will line up with who is it. I, you know, I'm just saying that results matter. In fact, I'll go the other way. Yes, I'm a fourth generation Trividian. Yes, my great grand uncle was one of the people who put his money up and signed the papers, was the vice president of the South Indian Liberal Federation that became the Justice Party. My grandfather was uh, chief minister and last president of the Justice Party. My father was DMK long-term member, speaker, minister. So I am in this space. But if the results have not been what they are, if the results have been failure after failure after failure, it's not clear that the Dravidian movement would have lasted 100 years. And certainly I would not say, let me come and add to the failure. For this, at least I could have done other things with my life, not come here. So it is the outcome that determines. If somebody else had a better model, a better philosophy, a better, you know, execution plan that showed better results, then I'm okay. I say, okay, maybe I should change my mind. Maybe I should learn from you. Maybe I should change my approach. But when your results are getting worse and worse and worse, then I don't understand how people keep saying, okay, okay, never mind, never mind, never mind. That's that's the part I can't figure out. And we were hoping you would tell us. Uh, okay. So, sir, you know, one really uh, quick thing I wanted to ask you, especially because you talk so much about, you know, you told us about your grandfather, you told us about your father. And so I have to ask you, the BJP is using all of that. And it's, you know, it's something that echoes with people. They, they keep throwing that at people that, look, the other parties are full of dynasts. They certainly use it very effectively against the Congress. Why is it that it's something that the voters seem to respond to in uh, giving advantage to the BJP in North India? But, you know, in, in Tamil Nadu, in Andhra Pradesh, in Telangana, this is not an issue. Again, as with everything, I have three or four answers. The first is the BJP is as full of dynasties as any other party. Tell me if that's true or not. I'll show you the graphic otherwise, right? No, I know, but it's just that other people are not able to use it very well against them. Number one, number two, uh, I came to politics 10 years after my father died. It's not, you know, and I was a rich man with a successful career before I came. It's not like they gave me, you know, kind of plate of opportunity when I was like 18 and fit for nothing and hadn't proven myself in the world. So there's all kinds of dynastic politics, number two. In fact, if my father was not Emily, I would not have come because I had a better life than coming. Number three, I didn't want it bad enough. I didn't pay for votes. I refused to pay for votes, both the first time and second time. First time, I barely scraped through by 6,000 votes or something. Second time, I won by over 34,000 votes. So the people don't seem to have a problem. If you deliver the result, I mean, the first time the people voted on faith because they didn't know me and uh, I had come from overseas. So clearly, it was my family's legacy that got me elected the first time. Second time, I was explicit. I said, doesn't matter who my father was. Now I've been in MLA for five years. Have I delivered? If so, vote for me. If not, get a better man than me or a better woman than me. No problem. So that's the, the, the last thing I would say. Is, in fact, one of the great successes of the BJP is they have attained levels that are not seen since Joseph Goebbels of the Nazi party. 
they have taken control of the narrative in a way and basically with their you know uh, crony capitalist friends acquired subjugated like brought all this media to heel where their message irrespective you know i i, I spoke at some forum where i said the original design of journalism or the, or the value of journalism was speak truth to power hold people accountable okay many places that doesn't happen the second is try to maintain some stance of neutrality don't go too hard at the government but try to stance in neutrality okay that that that's long behind us the third is you know parrot the government but at least stop with only parroting truth and not parroting lies we crossed that stage a long time ago then you come to say whatever the government wants to say but clearly if it's a falsehood or a blatant lie don't promote it now we have dudes whose day job is to parrot complete fabrications from whole cloth that the bjp's machine throws out and it's worse than that there are some people who i am 100% certain are acting to show they are more loyal than the king they're not even getting instruction they're doing it to show their loyalty you know and doing it more loyal than the king and i'm you know this is like you know big house so i think if their narrative is so powerful and so despite it being so far from the truth that's the point i'm trying to make is if it's the truth then itself it's a big deal but if you can make a falsehood stick then in reality i don't think we have seen anything since joseph goebbels of this scale and somebody has to be kind of commended for it. it's not good for democracy it's not good for society but it takes a particular talent to do that it's not it's not simple to do that in a country of a billion 400 million people so is the sri lanka crisis uh, you know how is it impacting how do you th- see it impacting us here in india and especially you in tamil nadu you know uh, of course we have great empathy of course we are deeply concerned because of our historic genetic relationships uh the um chief minister has already started many initiatives aid food money uh, we have collected a lot of things we have promised i think 40000 tons of grain we are moving all these things uh, right now but i think uh, as far as the reverse is concerned in terms of you know uh, migrants or uh, escapees from the crisis that you know we don't control those kinds of policies neither do we set the immigration policies in the north we control the coast guard so the best we can do and we did this a few weeks ago is start preparing for an influx in terms of providing uh, you know some infrastructure and some support mechanisms i must mention that after the chief minister took over last year he has already spent a lot of money a lot of time a lot of attention on improving the lives of those living here in these camps right they used to be called refugee camps he changed the name we invested a lot we improved the housing we gave them all gas cylinders gas stoves we gave them better food we gave them better schools we gave them job training so we are already kind of trying to improve the lives of those settled here uh and now we are expecting some more so we are just financially and 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 uh, what can i say pwd wise trying to get ready for if they should come but the policies are not set by us the policies are set by the union government if the ca rules were already formed would that have impacted this no because they didn't allow for these guys right so we asked the question why are they only giving in the muslim countries majority muslim countries they should have included yeah. sri lanka in this and if they had done it clearly it would have given a much faster path to citizenship 
but that, you know because it was always intended as an othering rather than a genuine concern for protecting uh, the law was framed in a very vindictive manner in my opinion so we've taken all your time just one last question are you because a lot of people have already written off 2024 and said that the bjp looks like it's coming back we've got two years to go are you one of them or are you actually optimistic about it and if you're optimistic what makes you optimistic uh again i'll tell you i my job is to be finance minister tamnadu i'm very very comfortable every day i get better at my job and i'm comfortable that i have achieved a lot relative to any of my predecessors already and every year i will beat this every year i will set a new benchmark for not just the results but improving the platform it's my stated intent that i want to create the most professional finance department in the history of india Uh, as good as a big bank or an investment bank would have i'm on the path to that i'm comfortable we have the right team most important we have the unstinting support and leadership of the chief minister and so you know uh, we'll do that but i don't want to duck your question let me say two things about it one a week is a lifetime in politics right the narrative that the bjp would like to set is that an election that is two years away is already decided today based on some state elections two three weeks ago i think my my friend prashant kishore who worked with us in the last election was very uh, trenchant as he always is and he said that election was about that election that election is not about any other election and the, you know powers that we would like to have you believe it was semi final and all every election is from scratch in fact i'll give you a statistic in a minute if you have time but let me say yes, the third sure. point the, the third point i want to say is that you know what i take from the markets is that as you know as kane said the markets can stay irrational longer than you can say stall solvent there's a corollary to that the longer they stay irrational the harder they correct and the more unpredictable and instantaneous the correction you know i i spent 20 years in the market so i i can give you many examples just when you think dude i can't understand how this is happening it'll go on for two more years and then one day it will whipsaw with the kind of velocity that you never imagined and then you would have been right but by then it's much later than you think so anything is possible i'll just give you one last statistic just to tell you how surface uh, analysis can be so misleading in my constituency uh, i ran in 2016 in 2019 a coalition partner ran as the mp candidate and in 2021 i ran again as mla candidate all three elections we didn't give money 16 and 21 on principle i didn't give money 19 my candidate was so poor he didn't even have a card so he didn't have money to give so we didn't give money of course there are macro waves in 16 we lost the overall election by 1% across tamil nadu and i won it by 4% so i say okay my opponent gave money i didn't give money i still won 19 again the opponent gave money we didn't give money but across tamil nadu we won by 20% or something or 22% and uh, my constituency we won best of all the six mla constituencies in madurai mp constituency but still not that great not as good as a state average but better than much better so in each election the voter uh, list shows about 2 and 1/2 lakh people and about 1 and 1/2 lakh people came to vote fast forward to the 21 election and all of a sudden i got nervous because at the last minute i heard that my opponent also who had been planning to give money was not going to give money now i panicked because in the previous two elections at least the opponent gave money the people 
Of course, some people would come to work for money. Those people had come. And therefore, if I didn't give it, it's okay. My guys came out of love or affection or hope and they came out of it. So the polling total was all right. It's still the lowest polling in all of Madurai district because it's only fully urban constituency. That's a different conversation in itself about the value or integrity of uh, electoral roles. Different story. But my big fear became that in 21, I would win. But if the voting dropped by 20 or 30,000 votes, it would be a kind of, a, you know, a kind of fearing quickly. It would say, ah, dude, you know, they didn't even care about you, whatever. So anyway, we did a bunch of last minute initiatives trying desperately to get everybody to vote all the stuff. And, you know, anyway, I should have done it, but I was very considerate. I made sure that all the polling stations had wheelchairs and, you know, the, you know, I, I had my own expense and all the stuff, with, you know, through donors. Anyway, we did everything. Polling came out roughly the same, one like 50,000. So I breathed a sigh of relief. Then there was one month between polling and counting. Now we start digging into the data. And what do we find? We find that roughly 30,000 or 28,000 people who came to the booth in 2019 had not shown up at the booth in 2021. And roughly 30,000 people who had not come in 19 had come into it. That means 20% of the electorate was a profoundly different electorate. Just think about how would you know? The total polling is the same. Percentage is roughly the same. Total voter list is roughly the same. Now we start digging into it and we find even more discrepancies. Of the 28,000 or something people who did not come in um, 21, who came in... uh, um, 19, only about four or 5,000 of them had either died or moved away. Or maybe, maybe no, three, 4,000 had passed away and maybe another uh, six or 7,000 had moved away. They had moved their vote to some other place. That means about uh, 20,000 people who came to vote in 19 simply did not bother to come to the booth on polling day, though they were registered voters still in my constituency. Then you look and say, who are the 31,000 who came? 13,000 people were either first-time voters, they had been, you know, not quite of age and they were now 18 or 19, or they had moved into the city and registered themselves to vote. 18,000 people were people who had been in Madurai as registered voters, had not come to the polls and came to vote. Immediately all my calculations went haywire. If 30,000 people are new, what can you say? You don't know anything. Right? Now, of course, most people don't track this data. Most people track it at the booth, but they don't come back and re-enter it into the computer and cross-reference and have a database and all this stuff. So when we did this, this changes everything. If literally 20, even the exact, roughly the same, within few hundred votes of each other and within half a percentage of each. So two and a half lakh, two and a half lakh, one and a half lakh, one and a half lakh. But 30,000 of the one and a half lakh are different. It's not the same election at all. It's a completely different election. And after we got the results and I realized that I had gone up, I had even, even though across Tamil Nadu, we had slid a lot. You know, the anti-BJP, anti-Modi wave of 2019 had given us a 23 or 22.5% victory at the state level. That came down to 8 or 8.5. But in my personal constituency, not only did I go from my 5 or 6 up, but also from the MP candidate to 18-19, I went up to like 24% margin of victory. So now I say, what does that mean? Then I realized that most people actually do vote with their feet, as the saying goes. Very few people (laughs) come to the booth and press A this year and B two years later. If they are enthused or if they are disgusted, 
They act. If they're enthused, they come and vote for you. If they're disgusted, they come and vote against somebody else. And if they're not, they just stay home. So every election is different. This notion that somehow what we saw in state elections has, is any kind of precursor or forerunner to 24 is, in my mind, just a fallacy. I think anything can happen in 24. Though it's not my job, I'm not planning for it, but I'm not in any way, you know, uh, already kind of uh, determined the outcome or anything. Dr. Thyagraj, you have not only explained all this really well to us, I think if other opposition leaders also heard you, I think there's so much in there for them as well. Thank you so much from both Roshan and me and thank you for speaking to the Hindustan Times. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Bye. If you enjoyed this edition of On The Record, don't forget to write to us. You can contact me on Twitter at Sunetra C. And on Instagram, Ms. Sunetra, to tell me what you thought of this interview and if you'd like me to interview a particular person. That's it for now. Do like and subscribe and share this podcast. I'll be back again with another edition. Till then, goodbye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.